Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the second hour of our broadcast. I promised you this would be a special hour, and it is going to be because I have a terrific guest. Her name is Chantra Meek Udi, and uh, Chantra is joining me. We were friends uh, many years ago when when my family and I lived in St. George. But Chantra, I I am so grateful that you are on the show today. Uh, You have a very unique perspective of someone who has actually seen, no, lived through a communist revolution. And as as I introduce you, um, I'd love for you to give us a little bit of background on on your family, uh, your heritage, uh, you know, where you're from. And then, then we can talk about some of the specifics of, of your experience and some of the lessons learned from that revolution. All right. Hi. <laughs> Um, you want me to start now? Yeah, tell I, me. Tell me first of all. Tell me a little bit ab- about yourself. You know, um, I know you have wonderful kids. I've been watching on Facebook as they've all grown up, and and uh, but you you actually your story starts in Cambodia. Right. I was born in Cambodia. Um, well, at the age of four, um, in April of seventy-five, the communists took over the country and forces us out of our home and into a countryside and put us in a concentration camp. And we lived in a killing field for four years. Um, my dad was a fighter pilot um, in the Cambodian Air Force, and he was fortunately didn't made it out of their life with us. Um, unfortunately, six months later, um, they found out about his um, our background, and they took him away from us, and that was the last time we, I saw my father, and that was really hard for me as a young girl, at four and a half years old. I couldn't understand why anybody could be so cruel, taking someone you love so much away from you, and and then we heard a little bit of him here and there within a year that he was tortured and he was um, forced to work as sort of ship to, um, and uh, I, I'm not sure what was going on, but um, I, I'm sure um, he was, you know, tortured and they probably killed him. Wow. And um, so that left my mom with the three of us. Um, there's me and my older sister and then my younger brother and we were we were young and you know, my parents background they came from a wealthy family and of course they had a lot of money and um, when they when we were forced into the concentration camp my mom was forced to work in the in the rice field from sun up to sundown and we were told how to think by the communists and we were, you know, we were fed very, very little. We were starving most of the time. Um, let's let's talk for just a second about. Um, I mean, you you mentioned your family was was, uh, you know, they were they were people of means. It, you you your family was educated. Um, what were their thoughts 
as this revolution began. I, I'm curious, uh, what were the first signs that, that there was trouble? Well, they came in the country and they um, started telling us to leave our homes that they told us that the Americans were going to come and bomb the city and that we need to leave for a few days. And um, they, they they made it sound like everything was going to be okay. Um, they take control over the country. And um, they, the, the original plan was to kill everybody over the age of 12. And that, um, that plan fell through. So the next thing was to, after, as we marched off away from our home, we noticed that they went around and asked each um, and everyone what they did for the for living. And so they start killing people who had any kind of education. Wow. And, 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 and for, for, for those who may not be connecting the dots, why was it so important to eliminate those who were educated? Um, the plan was to kill everyone who was older. I mean, they, they brainwash all the little kids to become one of them, and then they, they taught young, young kids, um, you see, between the age of 12 and 17, um, to... I, I don't just brainwash them. Wow. Now, I, Chanter, I have to ask this because I, I know you have told this story before, but um, your parents' reaction as as things began, as as the the unrest started, what was the reaction? Maybe not just of your parents, but of, but of other people regarding, you know, is it time to leave or is it, you know, should we be fleeing the country? How did they react? Most people. Almost all of the people were confused, and they had no clue, let alone no idea that it was going to be turn out to be the killing fields, that they were going to spend the next four years, or, you know, a lot of them lost their lives during the four years. Um, they had no idea. They, at first, they kind of believed what was going on. They, they wanted to believe, but I, most of the people um, just kind of went along with it. They didn't fight. Of course, we, you know, we couldn't defend ourselves because we had bad governments who didn't, um, you know, they didn't really, my, my dad didn't trust the government. And plus, he, I think in his mind, he knew what was going on, um, but he never thought, my parents never thought it was going to be that guy. Uh, my dad, at one point, did told my mom, let's just pack a small suitcase and just um, let's just get out of here. Let's just go to the United States. So he, my father pre-flight a plane and starts the engine. So while the engines are warming, he just ran home and tries to get my mom to pack, you know, a small suitcase and just take the family. He said, it is time to escape. Um, he wants, he really wants to come to the United States. Um, somehow my mother encourages him to stay in fight for a country. Um, and then we delayed until it is everlastingly too late. And then um, by the time we they decided to get out of there, it was too late. And wow. We, we wouldn't have made it anyway. 
So, Chantra, when the people showed up um, to to take you from your home and and move you to the countryside, um, walk us through that process. Um, was it was it soldiers with guns who came and, and forced you to leave, or was it something different? Yes, there were a group of communist soldiers. There weren't a lot of it, from what I've heard and studied. A little bit about it was less than five thousand um, soldiers, and most. Most of the soldiers were young kids and unarmed. Um, there are few, including some of the leaders, that came into the city and said, you know, they just told everybody to leave our homes and you know, kind of a little bit forceful. Wow. So for the most part, it, it wasn't everybody being marched off by soldiers, but rather by by the young revolutionaries working for and under the, the direction of these soldiers. Um, what was the excuse that they gave? I mean, obviously, you said that they, the, the Americans are planning on bombing, but um, to get people to go along with them, how did they reassure them? I, you know, to me, I don't think it's very, I mean, I feel like, Did anybody believe that this was going to be, uh, you know, an improvement? Hey, look, we're here to fix things. We're here to make the world a better place. Did, did any of the people who were removed from their homes actually believe that? Or did, did they just think like, well, we're kind of stuck at this point. We have to go along. Maybe at first for a minute. But after that, because right away, um, people starting to see how the soldiers were starting to treat all this people, and they just start killing if you're too old to walk. I mean, we were talking about, um, we left, my family left with a car, and my dad was driving a car, and at some point, wasn't very long after we left the house, um, the soldiers came up to my dad and said, we, we want your car. And so my dad seated them, he said that my children are too small, and it was, he knew it was going to be a long walk to our destination, where they're taking us. Okay, hold that but thought. They, hold that thought, Chantra. We've got to take a quick break. My guest is Chantra Meek Yudi. We're talking about the Cambodian killing fields, which she and her family experienced. We'll be back after these messages. One. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. We are talking today with Chantra Meek Yudi, who is a survivor of the Cambodian killing fields under the Khmer Rouge. She was a very young girl when her family was taken from their home in the city. They, they, they had opportunity to escape, as Chantra was telling us, but um, her mother persuaded her father, you know, maybe, maybe we would be better to stay and, and to, to, you know, restore our country or to, to save our country. Unfortunately, the Khmer Rouge came into power, and Chantra, as you were relating to us, um, from there, 
things became very, very difficult for a lot of people, uh, particularly after uh, the, the educated were sought out and removed from society. And by removed, I mean were, were killed off. Um, what, was, uh, what happened to the people and, and to you and members of your family once you were taken out to the countryside? Where did you go from there? When we were first forced out of our homes, um, we, all my relatives, my family, were scattered all over. They had a few concentration camps that they placed us. And um, my family, uh, my parents, the three of us siblings, and then my grandfather was with us and one of our mates. And um, we got put in a different concentration camp. And... Um, Right away, uh, about six months later, like I mentioned before, they found out about my father and they took him away. And uh, we, a short, shortly about a few months after that, my grandfather died of starvation. And that leaves the, my mom and the three of, three of us. And she was forced to work in a, in a um, rice field from sunup to sundown. And um, the soldiers would, now that they knew our background, they would come up to her and they would ask her to um, step out of her job. And she um, faced them and she asked them, what are you going to do? If you're going to kill me, please let me go home and take my three children so we can all die together. Most of the time they said, well, we just want to have a meeting and we want you to attend. And the meeting was just pound on the people, work hard or we'll kill you. And um, we were there on that first camp um, for about a year and a half. And then we were forced to the next camp. And um, the, it was just uh, every day we'll get the community, the communist community, they, they had their little kitchen and they cooked. Um, you know, just we'll, we'll get a few grains of rice a day um, with um, full of, a cup of water, <clears throat> and that's what, how that's how we were fed. Wow! And um, somehow, when my mom left home, she sensed that she was going to need um, to take jewelry with her, so she took some gold necklace and. She smuggled it, and then she would sew down in my, the hem of my skirt and my sister. And every time the soldiers come up to her, she would brush those away and said, go play over there so they won't check you. And that's one of the things that saves my, I I believe those two things saved my family lives was one, um, because of the gold jewelry, she was able to cut a length of that when you were starving, starving, hungry, um, cut a length and would pray it or hire somebody who was brave enough to go and get us a couple rice or some chicken so that we could secretly cook and devour under the darkness um, at night while everybody went to sleep. And the other thing was her faith. She had tremendous faith, faith and she was in tune of the spirit. Um, she somehow... If you were born in Cambodia, you're automatically a Buddhist. Mm-hmm. And so somehow, deep down in herself, she knew that there, there was God up in heaven that she could pray to. And I remember she would gather us around, and she would 
taught us how to pray to God, and um, that was her tremendous faith. And she would pray that we will make it a life, make it through this terrible time, and make it a made it a life all for us, and that we would make it to this freedom country, United States. That was her dream and her hope and her wish through that four years. And eventually, you guys did, which is a miracle we in did. itself. So. Right, and during those times, it was, I I personally experienced a lot also. I saw men got shot in front of us. Um, I remember my brother was only, a, he was a couple years younger than me. Um, my my sister, um, third camp, um, they took her away from us. Um, they went to each and every family, and they looked, for any children that are certain age, young, um, older, probably eight or nine years old up, and then they would take them into this concentration camp and put them in the group, and then they would take us down, no family, no love, no um, any of that, and so they kind of they brainwashed her. And so she was taken away from us for about two weeks, and then... And then one one day she decided that she couldn't be away from her family any longer, and so she decided to get her four other little girls about her age. I'm thinking she's about nine years old by then, and she decided that she would escape at night. And so one night she um, just started to take off, and she said she had no idea where she was going, but yet, um, the soldiers were everywhere, but yet she felt like someone was letting her away. And she found um, the camp where we were. She camp. She found the, her way back to us. And then two days later, we were forced to move out, out of that camp. And had she waited two more days, we would never be seen her again. Wow. Mm-hmm. Chantra, we've we've got about uh, two minutes left here. What are the lessons? I know you have you have actually gone and you've done numerous firesides in presenting this story to to people um, here in America. Um, what are the lessons that we need to be paying attention to as to what's going on around us that we could learn from your experience with this uh, communist revolution you lived through? Um, to be honest, I am I'm scared <laughs> all the time just because the experience I've been through. And um, I, I I think we just need to be aware of what's going on around us. And um, I, we just need to pay attention and to be prepared, um, you know, for what's coming. And I, I sometimes I, I want to follow the, um, the politics. Sometimes I don't just because I'm nervous about the whole thing. And I know it's um, something's coming, and I know it's, it's scary. But we need to be to be strong and to be prepared for what's coming. Talk to me about uh, the role of faith in being prepared for what's coming. Um, faith, um, just I, I, you know, it's, it's believing in God. And having that faith that um, he, you know, he, he's there and that he would um, help us through 
um, some things that we need, and I, I think we just need to be helpful with others and just be generous and be kind to one another and treat, you know, treat each other with um, kind and respect and then um, have faith and, and then talk to God and believe and here, have here. that. Yeah. Okay. Chantra, thank you so much for being my guest today. I so appreciate you sharing your story, and God bless you and your family. Thank you, Brian. All right. That was Chantra Meek Yudi. We'll take a break. I'll be back after these messages. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. All right, welcome back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Again, I just I want to tip my hat in thanks to uh, Chantra Meek Yudi for uh, for sharing her experience. Um, I know the the phone connection was was not the greatest, and and Chantra kept apologizing to me during the break. She kept saying, "I'm so sorry. I'm just I'm not good with words, and and, I, and I'm nervous, so it's it's hard to say exactly what's in my heart." But I'm hoping you, my dear listener, I hope you would understand of all people that um, to me her, her message doesn't need to be delivered by. Uh, you know, someone with the polish of, you know, a TV spinmeister or, or talking head. Um, there's an authenticity in what she is talking about, the reality of what her family went through. Um, I, I know my wife attended a fireside that uh, Chantra gave some years ago uh, when we lived in St. George and, and has come away from that for years. Becky has brought that up to me and just said, oh, this is so powerful. The lessons that are to be learned and and. Please understand, my goal here is not to get you all fearful, okay? This is not like, uh, all right, you know, we're going to have us a John Birch meeting. We're going to get everybody riled up about the commies. <laughs> that's, that's not the purpose. The idea here is just to recognize that sometimes things can change and there can be a wholesale uh, tectonic shift of everything right under our feet. And even if you notice, you may not really grasp the significance of what you are seeing. And I don't think I'm exaggerating or understating when I say, you know, this has been a year of a lot of shifts. There's been a lot of stuff that has taken place that I think a lot of us are standing around for for a fair amount of the time with our jaw hanging open going, really? This is what it has come to. And in such a short time. So I guess here's a question I have for you. And by the way, join the conversation. 801-331-8113. Would you notice... Would you be able to tell if there was a similar kind of revolution taking place right under your nose? I'm not saying it's the exact same thing, okay? I'm not saying Antifa and, you know, the Black Lives Matters and some of the various left-wing groups that are pushing so hard right now for what they call social justice. You know, I'm not saying they are the, uh, you know, equivalent of the Khmer Rouge, who I think uh, in the end uh, under Pol Pot... There was at least two million Cambodians murdered by their government when these people took power. It's not to say that they're the same thing, 
But listen to the rhetoric, listen to some of the t- methods that they achieve or they use to achieve what they're doing and ask yourself, are we headed in a similar direction? I mean, I've seen a lot of different comparisons and, and some of them, it, it varies from day to day. Some days it looks like the French Revolution out there. Some days it looks like, you know, the great cultural uh, revolution, the cultural proletarian, uh, proletarian revolution under Mao. Some days it looks like the young Bolsheviks are having a field day. But you get the commonality of the message. What came before must be torn down. History must be erased. You cannot speak this. You cannot say that. We must destroy this. And I mean, for crying out loud, you know, you can't even you can't so much as, as sit down to breakfast now without making sure that you're not having a, a, a racist breakfast. Am I right, Aunt Jemima? Oh, sorry. She doesn't exist anymore. That's right. We had to get rid of her and Uncle Ben. I think it was Michael Malice was pointing out, well, the uh, white uh, supremacist dream of never having to look at another ethnic face from the store shelf appears to be coming true. Well done, social justice warriors. Well done. Let's go back to the phone caller. Welcome to the show. Yeah, Brian, Sam calling. Hi, Sam. I'm well. Good. Um, The thing I'm cautioning people about is you know, we've been talking for years about how the education system is so messed up in this country. And, you know, we've had this stuff going on in these neighborhoods for years, thanks to the public policies that government has set up. And I always remind people that it's, it was the black folks primarily that they got wrapped around their finger now for the uh, overthrow, the potential overthrow of the United States. But in the future, it'll also be the whites and various other people outside those neighborhoods as well, because... The schools in so many areas, unless parents homeschool or something like that, are teaching some of the very nonsense all the way across the board now. And I'm not so sure that eventually we won't wind up with uh, the uh, rest of the population as more and more of these people come out of the schools if they won't be doing the same thing. Because when you teach them, when you teach them that every that they're entitled to everything, which is um, basically the stuff they they put out there it's 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 not surprising to see how these people behave and i've always said that uh you know if you want to if you want to teach a a child about what true communism is demand uh something of their own personal stuff and see how far it goes before they uh before they throw a fit before they give it to you if i were a teacher i would i would teach them communism and reverse right back at them i'd teach them okay if you say that everything belongs to everybody then uh Give me your money. Give me your whatever, you know, and see how far that goes. Yeah, I actually was reading about somebody had, uh, I guess they had gone to, it's no longer the Chaz. It's, uh, now it's something, I think they call it CHOP. Anyway, the the, the zone, the uh, autonomous zone in Seattle. And they said, you know, guys, I'd like to stay, but I can't. I was robbed of $400 cash. Someone stole my laptop. Someone took my food that I brought. I can't stay here. And and the, the explanation somebody gave was, well, now, maybe it wasn't stolen, but uh, was simply acquired by someone who needed it more than you do. Thanks for your contribution to the cause. Come on, we need you. And I went, okay, enough of the mental gymnastics. You didn't really get robbed. Somebody just took all your stuff because, hey, man, communism. <laughs> Yeah, it's still robbery by any other name. It doesn't matter what it is. I mean, it's still theft. Exactly. And uh, that's that's where I uh, have so much of a problem with this. So, you know, everybody, you know, everybody keeps, 
you know, complaining about why things are the way they are. Well, when you raise up a generation that is taught all this stuff, don't be surprised. And we, and I mean, people for years. I mean, even John Taylor Gatto has been, you know, when he was alive, was talking about the the problem with education in this country. I mean, it's been it's been going on for a long time. And I don't think there's a lot of people out there who take it seriously enough. And then you couple that with people who don't uh, discipline their children correctly. Uh, I'm not talking about beating them, but I'm talking about when, uh, you know, even the Bible talks about spare the rod, spoil the child, you know. I mean, sometimes they're just children that are just, that are just strong-willed enough that sometimes you have to, um, you know, you have to spike them on the behind just a little bit to get their attention. And, um, you know, you couple all that, and then now here we are starting to see similar to the same stuff as time goes along. And I'm saying, I'm telling everybody out here in our area where we live, you know, watch what your kids are being taught. Don't just use the public schools as a babysitter. Watch what they're being taught. And uh, if, you know, the schools aren't doing what they're supposed to do, you're going to have to take matters into your own hands. That's just all there is to it. Assuming the parents at this stage of the game even know what in the world um, is really going on, you know, because we've been generations of this. I mean, I've watched this, Brian, ever since I was, uh, ever since I got out of school. And it wasn't even as bad then, but it was starting to go that way. I mean, the schools have been in decline for a long, long time. Yep. You know. No, I'm with you. And that's, and see, we got multiple generations now. We got, you know, we got parents who don't even know history. I mean, I've talked to people, I've talked to adults around me that don't even know the history of the Roman Empire, much less the uh, history of the United States. And why is the Roman Empire so important? Because the Roman Empire decayed much like we're decaying from within. There was not an outside force that invaded Rome at that time. And like us, it was considered too big to fail. Yep, absolutely. That's all I got, Brian. Okay. Thanks so much for the call, Sam. 801-331-8113. You know, I know I sound like a broken record when I start talking about liberty. And I start talking about things like freedom of conscience and and things like the free market and, and private property rights. But I truly believe that the founding generation understood these things because they had historical context. Cicero talked about how if you don't know what came before you you are forever a child because you're relying on other people to tell you how we got here from there so when sam says you know people who don't even know the history of the roman empire look you don't have to you don't have to have a phd in history in order to understand that when you study history there are patterns that you start to recognize and and more importantly you can learn from those patterns hey every time a civilization has made this mistake or embraced this imperative the consequences have been this or the the results sometimes it's good have been this but you can learn from it and so when you see groups like this this group and i you know i'm not laying it just strictly at the feet of the communists i'm just going to use the term the collectivists who are out there rioting and destroying and, and trying to silence people that's always a tool that they have to use why because their ideas cannot withstand scrutiny. They have to artificially limit what other people are saying. And they do it by force and by intimidation. You know how you can tell if an idea isn't very good? It has to be imposed at gunpoint. 
Oh, by the way, there's a lot of Democratic and Republican ideas that have to be imposed at gunpoint. So let's not just think it's the commies that are doing this. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back. This is Loving Liberty. Hey, welcome back. This is Loving Liberty. It's funny. I just I just hopped over to my Facebook page. And what do I see? One of the brightest young minds that I've ever known. I was a student with this guy a few years ago at a small liberal arts college in southern Utah. And he is arguing for ca- for communism <laughs> and arguing with all of his soul against capitalism. I don't know. I think I think it's easier to become untethered than we sometimes uh, think. And I'm not I'm not suggesting, boy, I have all the answers. I sure don't. But I just know systems that rely on compulsion to accomplish what they want to accomplish um, always seem to lead to starvation. They seem to lead to unhappiness and uh, and just despair. So, you know, whatever problems capitalism may have, and, and I'll concede, yep, when you're dealing with human beings, there there are people who will take advantage but for crying out loud, you know, let me give you an example here. Tom Cranawitter, I quoted him yesterday. He says, here's the way things work in a free society. A job is an agreement between two parties. One party promises to do a certain amount of kind of work, and the second party agrees to compensate the first with some amount of value. And both parties agree to the terms. That's it. Any reason for which an employee can quit, an employer should be able to fire. Period. If you as an employee are free to quit because you don't like the employer, then the employer should be equally free to fire you because he doesn't like you. If you have some talent or skill to offer, then offer it. And if you're not happy with the value that others are willing to pay for your talents and skills, or if you want to more secure contracts than others are willing to sign on to, become more valuable, improve your talents, or add to your skill set so that others will value more what you can do. Or start your own business and hire whomever you want, and pay them whatever you want. No one is stopping you. He says, since when do free people want government intervening and dictating who must be hired, who cannot be fired, and for what reasons? Since I brought up social media, I spend more time on there than I would like to, but there's a terrific article from Robert E. Wright on the American Institute for Economic Research. The Desperate Loneliness of Social Media. I think this may be timely. I don't know. Will it make me stop going on there? Eh, Probably not. But I will tell you, I definitely, I reserve the right to use social media in a way that it is in somehow a benefit to me and not a source of or a pipeline of negativity. That doesn't mean I'm going to block everybody or unfriend everybody willy-nilly, but uh, people who are behaving toxically, yeah, they will they will find that uh, I'm not going to make room for them in my social media universe. That's not a you know an eternal damnation either. It's just it's just creating some distance where maybe they need some time to cool off. Here's what uh, Robert E. Wright says: Too long forgotten in the musty corners of academe. The classics of post-war social science can help to eliminate our own less-than-sane times. The Lonely Crowd, published in 1950, is yet another work 
Uh, Previous posts cover the true believer or the experiments of Stanley Milgram and other social psychologists that tried to figure out what went wrong with the world between 1914 and 1945. And here you have three guys who stepped forward. Sociologist David Reisman. He passed away back in 1902, or in uh, rather 2002. Uh, he was the main author, but sociologist Nathan Glazer and poet Ruel Denny also contributed. So from here after, we'll refer to them as the trio RGD. They were all known for solid scholarship. RGD identified the three main social personality types, tradition, inner, and other directed. In the messy real world, nobody completely fits into any of those categories, but the typical behaviors of many people fit into one of the three, and these three saw the other directed personality trait gaining ascendance in mid-century America. Tradition-directed personalities try to live by rules created scores, hundreds, maybe even thousands of years ago. They judge themselves and others against old, rigid rules, and hence, according to RGD, they struggle to adapt to the moderly, to the rapid, modern-changing Let's try that again. Rapidly changing modern world. So many of these would be like religious fundamentalists, Amish, and so forth. Interdirected personalities live by their own rules, judging themselves and others based on their own sense of right and wrong, often notions inculcated by parents and schools early in life. Now, they can be somewhat rigid in their views, but uh, they also accept the rule of reason and hence adapt to changing circumstances, although maybe a bit too slowly for the 20th century world. If tradition-directed personalities follow strict rules for navigating through life, inner-directed ones follow a gyroscope toward goals imbued through early socialization, while other-directed ones follow their social radar toward popular destinations. Other-directed personalities are inherently flexible because their views of themselves and others come to them from others. Wow, let that sink in. Neither tradition nor reason bind them. They seek approval and applause rather than respect and are the best adapted to the modern economy, which demands rapid adaptability regarding cars and clothes styles and workplace roles. So over time, RGD predicted other directed personalities would increasingly dominate inner and especially tradition directed personalities who would be relegated to small enclaves like religious cults or agricultural communes. Tradition, RDG argues, is best suited to people just trying to survive. Inner compasses work best for people trying to achieve material prosperity. But once that prosperity has been achieved, then increasingly other people are the problem, not the material environment. And as people mix more widely and become more sensitive to each other, the surviving traditions and gyroscopic control is no longer sufficiently flexible, and a new psychological mechanism is called for. So RGD predicted unless trends, present trends are reversed, the hegemony of other direction appears not far off. Now, just a quick aside. What is it that makes the uh, other directed people stand out? Their self-esteem comes from others. So you want to be a social media influencer? How do you do it? Well, you get the approval of other people. Likes, retweets, shares. Get the picture? They appear to have been correct. RGD appears to have been correct, at least in round terms. By the early 21st century, most Americans clamored for popularity, not respect. Lonely, although almost constantly surrounded by other people, they earnestly seek out more followers or friends, usually people they'll never meet in person. 
who show approbation for virtue signaling with likes and their disapprobation uh, through blocking or canceling. Now, it all may seem harmless because what difference does it make if people spend time hiking or reading a book or watching TV programming or liking TikTok videos and Instagram posts? Richard C. Earle says, far be it from me or anyone to tell others how to spend their time or what to think of themselves or others. But he says, when it comes to the quality of democratic institutions, the different social personalities lead to very different outcomes. Tradition-directed voters judge politicians and their policy proposals against some unchanging old lodestone like the Bible, the Koran, or Constitution. They're conservative farmers and ranchers who tend to feel shame when they transcend tradition. Interdirected voters, by contrast, judge politicians and their policy proposals against their own core principles, which can range from Marxism to classical liberalism. And they often defy easy categorization because, relatively speaking, they are products of individual independent thought. Regardless of their politics, they are America's proprietors. It's kulaks. They tend to feel guilt when they break direction break from the direction, rather, indicated by their inner gyroscopes. Now, meanwhile, other directed voters go on social media to try to figure out which politicians and policy proposals will earn them the most plaudits from assorted avatars and social influencers. In other words, they value fitting in over logic or consistency, and many seem genuinely puzzled when the inconsistencies in their expressed opinions are pointed out to them. He says, I can hardly wait for one to explicitly say, well, it's not popular to be logically consistent right now, so you're blocked. They make great employees and bureaucrats. They often lean left politically. They feel almost constant anxiety because they can never be entirely sure that their views remain popular. In fact, he says it's increasingly difficult to figure out why the other directed herd sometimes abruptly changes direction or loses momentum. It's easy to imagine a puppet master or central planner calling all the shots, but if there is one, he, she, or it is psychotic and revels in randomness. Back in RGD's time, people believed Madison Avenue, shorthand for the advertising industry, held sway. Later it was Hollywood or televangelists or shock jocks. It's kind of a fascinating take, right? Robert Wright says, moving America's social personality type toward inner directedness again may be a pipe dream at this point because its proprietors and entrepreneurs are currently being assailed from all directions. In fact, he says, if I didn't know better, I would say we are in a period of decoolocization of the deliberate destruction of small business owners through otherwise useless economic lockdowns and police-induced looting. Wow. I do believe it uh, is coming to that. But he says the destruction of small business ownership could never happen in the United States, right? Right? I'll post this in the show notes. You can check it out for yourself. Thanks again for joining us. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. We'll see you tomorrow.